Good evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk, your host on Valley Writers Read. Delighted to welcome you to another program where we feature only local Valley writers to read their literary prose. And tonight we welcome Hope Nisley, a writer who lives in Reedley and one whom we've had on numerous times. She'll be reading a story of hers entitled Seasons of Doubt. Here she is, Hope Nisley, Seasons of Doubt. There's a family Bible on the table With its pages worn and hard to read But that family Bible on the table Will always be my key to memory Seasons of Doubt My mother once told me that to be sincere was not enough in life. One can be sincere, she said, and be sincerely wrong. The very thought filled me with enough doubt to fill the Atlantic Ocean. Then how, I asked her, do we know that we aren't sincerely wrong? We met, Summer and I, on a humid August morning. It was a wordless meeting on the first day of seventh grade as we prepared to worry our way through multiplication tables in Iowa history. At 8.30 in the morning, we could hardly move as we stood in line after the bell rang. There wasn't much of the usual pushing and giggling. We just stood there, a bedraggled bunch wishing we were anywhere but here. We were a pretty ordinary group of farm kids. Scattered throughout the line were a few Amish kids and myself. I was Mennonite, but anyone who didn't know me thought I was Amish. You couldn't miss me with my long dresses and braids that had never been cut. At least kids here were used to me, but I was always uncomfortably conspicuous. Just for one day, I wanted my hair cut stylishly short. Just for one long day, I wished I could put on a pair of shorts and simply look like everyone else. This was during the days of flower children and hippies when long hair and flowing skirts were part of the fashion scene, but still people would turn and stare, and I hated being different. My grandma joked that she always knew that if she retained her dress style, fashion would return to her someday. I feel, she would state with a silly grin, downright stylish in my long dresses. At twelve, I didn't find it quite as humorous as she intended. Standing in line that morning, I was resorting to my usual attempts to disappear, to stay out of everyone's line of vision. I had it down to an art, how to keep people from noticing you. I could have written the book on it. That morning I saw summer, and although I didn't know it at the time, my world was never the same again. The change was not immediate, but I guess that even then I could sense it. I was startled when the new girl smiled in my direction. Not a nasty, making-fun-of-me kind of smile, just an ordinary one. She was wearing a green, paisley shirt that flopped outside of her waistband. Her skirt was short, but not too short. She wore running shoes, something we reserved for gym class. Her glasses were narrow and black. Her dark hair was parted in the middle and hung straight, just a little below her shoulders. It was easy to see that she was not one of us. What was most unusual was her gaze, how she took in everything and everyone. She stared silently with a look that penetrated like a carefully thrown dart. She stood casually, comfortably, shifting from one foot to the other as if she had all day. She didn't flinch or look away when someone looked at her. She met and held each stare as if daring us to turn away. 
Her gaze was not malicious, just loaded with detached curiosity, confidence, and a hint of cynicism. During roll call, I listened carefully to catch her name. Summer Night. Even the name was exotic. I knew a few people named for months of the year, but none for a whole season. I was enamored with this girl named for a season who, in my persistently self-effacing way, I was certain would never give me a second glance. I watched her every move during the first days of school. No one rejected her outright. We just weren't sure what to do with her. She exuded worldliness that we had never seen, so we said hi shyly and left it at that. She must have known that my eyes dogged her every move, but she didn't care. About three days into seventh grade, I got lucky. For the first few days, the kid who sat beside me, his name was Myron, but we called him Creature for obvious reasons, talked nonstop. He even joked his way through the tornado drill, hollering a blick hit me until we considered throwing a real brick at him. Mrs. Kelly moved him to the front row right under her nose and put Summer in the spot beside me. Art class began with a mosaic project. Carefully, we snipped out multicolored squares of construction paper and pasted each one onto the backdrop, muttering under our breaths at its tediousness. Slowly, my tulip took shape, a collection of red confetti amid a sea of green and blue. Art wasn't exactly my strong point, and it could have been a first-grade creation. Arts and artists were foreign to us, another one of those thems, part of another world of strange pursuits that we shunned, however passively. When I glanced across the aisle and saw Summer's mosaic, I had yet another confirmation that she wasn't one of us. Here was a montage of shapes and colors I had never seen. Summer had not cut her confetti into ordinary squares like the teacher had instructed us, but in tiny curlicues. The swirls blended from one tone of blue or green or brown to another. The result was indescribably beautiful. I stared at it until Summer looked up frowning. I smiled at her, amazed and jealous, longing to be friends with this girl who was like no one I had ever known. But whenever I thought of talking to her, my feet turned to cement blocks, my mouth went dry as dust. There was nothing at school that I hated more than physical education. Mr. Rex started us out running in the horrible heat of the summer. With 30 other kids, I started off down the gravel road by the school. Dodging a pickup truck loaded with feed sacks and choking on clouds of dust, I stepped on a rounded pebble and ended in a patch of thistles in the ditch. I squinted into the glaring sun as the realization struck that I had lost my glasses. I began to grope wildly for them. As usual, I had been at the tail end of the line of runners with no prospect of help. My only consolation was that no one had seen the fall. I sat there choking on dust with thorns in my palm, a throbbing knee, and no glasses. I felt among the weeds without results. Need some help? I looked up to find Summer looking down at me. The glare of the sun glimmered through her long hair, leaving her face in deep shadow. I need my glasses. My throat caught, and the words came out in a mouse-like squeak. I fell, and I think I hurt my knee. No kidding, the dry voice filtered back down at me through the hazy air. We were supposed to be running, not diving. I crawled up the bank while she parted the weeds in an attempt to locate my pink, cat-eye-framed glasses. Little bit blind, are you? And before I could answer, she added, Me too. I nodded in reply, although I was not sure my reply was required. 
Hey, what do you know? Found him. I smiled gratefully and swallowed hard. As I stared, this thin, gangly girl, with a perpetual sneer, reached out to help me up, saying, P.E. is stupid. My brother says all P.E. teachers are fascists. I had no clue what a fascist was, but I didn't care. I could see again. I had made a new friend, and I had obtained a bona fide excuse from running in P.E. all in one swoop. This was my lucky day. Throughout that fall, I spent a lot of time in the chiropractor's office while my knee healed, poring over the doctor's Life and Time magazines. New descriptions of horror etched themselves onto my brain. Naked, crying children from a place called Vietnam. Orange-robed monks. Boys in camouflage. I learned new words such as napalm and self-immolation. Recognizable words acquired new meanings. At my church, we believed in peace, but this was different. During P.E. class, I sat in my classroom, making up a new sport, complete with new rules and new playing field. I tried a triangular court. This was my gym teacher's punishment for finding a valid excuse from physical education, but it was worth every minute. I did not miss the never-ending games of bombardment, where everyone tried to kill each other with hard rubber balls. Sadism seemed to be our teacher's middle name. I may not have known the meaning of fascist, but I knew meanness when I saw it. At the same time, I talked Mom and Dad into buying me a guitar, hoping to learn how to play Blowin' in the Wind and to put haunting minor chords to psalms. However, the first song I had to learn, thanks to my guitar teacher, Mr. Miller, was Go Tell Aunt Rhody. My cousin Ken, who tried to sound like Bob Dylan and knew all the anti-war songs, was a little more help. We may have tried to remain isolated, but we still caught the angst. In Sunday school, we sang Sounds of Silence when the teacher would let us, and turn, turn, turn. After all, that one was in the Bible, so they couldn't object, or at least that was our way of reasoning. At night, I lay awake listening to the late-night DJ in an AM world of fear and anger. The raspy voice of Barry McGuire's Eve of Destruction left me feeling nervous. What really was going on out there? At school, Summer and I began to spend time together. She was cynical about everything and everyone. She cracked jokes about smoking Mary Janes. She talked to me about Nixon and about the war. She gave me books to read, like Catch-22 and Catcher in the Rye. And she never, ever made fun of my hair and my odd clothes, never even asked me why I looked this way. Years of taunting and stares had prepared me only for more taunting and stares, The lack of it was palpable and soothing. I could tolerate all the doubts she raised in my mind for that one luxury. Say, she turned to me over the regular Friday lunch of fish sticks, pale green peas, and mashed potatoes. I hear you Mennonites are sort of like hippies. I hear you don't like this war either. Don't like this war? I shrugged. I guess not, but we don't like any war. I knew that was true, but again, I wasn't sure what it meant. My brothers were registering as conscientious objectors, just as Dad had done years before, but we had no intentions of being countercultural. What about taxes, Summer persisted. My brother says we shouldn't pay for this stuff either. Pay for what? I was perplexed. I knew nothing about taxes. The military, Summer stated. My brother says... 
I learned a lot about what Tom said and believed. If Tom believed it, Summer did too, and that meant I would hear about it. The days passed quickly amid news of a moratorium in Washington. I read everything I could, trying to digest different ideas of peace. All fall, my view of the world continued to dissolve, but I kept it to myself. During math, a note fluttered my way. I'm going to Iowa City Friday for a doctor's appointment. Go with me. My brother said he would take us to lunch. Why would Summer want to take me, with my braids and long dresses? Surely she would not want to go into the real world with me. What could I say to such a request? Why would she want me? I was speechless. Her mother was a back-to-earth hippie. They lived in the renovated one-room schoolhouse that I used to attend. Summer never spoke about her dad. I didn't know anyone without a dad. Everything Summer did, everything she was, whatever she said, was diametrically opposed to what I was taught to be true or right. At recess, we hovered at the edge of the playground, watching like we always did. So, what do you think, she asked. Will you go with me? I told her I had to think about it. It'll be a great day to be there. There's going to be a protest on the quad. We can get in on it if we want to. You've got to go with me. Her nonchalance in the presence of such big stuff amazed me. I didn't want to act too interested, but I really wanted to go. If only I could get rid of this pounding fear. I did not answer her for a few days. When Friday morning came, I went to the teacher with a note in hand, written by Summer's sister, a master forger, with Mom's signature at the bottom. Please excuse Hope, the note stated boldly. I will pick her up at 9.30 for another doctor's appointment. The teacher only glanced at it and nodded briefly. Just walk out quietly when it's time, she told me. I met Summer at the side of the school, and we rode away with Tom. When we got to the old Capitol building at the center of the university campus, we wound our way through the growing crowd. Poncho-draped college students mingled with gray-haired sign carriers. Someone handed me a sign that I dangled at my side. One of Tom's friends laughed and asked where the Amish kid came from. Wow, man, I didn't know the Amish would dig this, he laughed. Welcome to the world, kid. Tom sensed my discomfort and warned his friends to back off. Quietly, I watched. I relaxed a little, but still took great pains to be unnoticed. We were back at school in time for the bus ride. That night, I lay awake with the radio tuned to KIOA. The news came on, and the newsman talked about the protest, which had been replicated across the country. The DJ laughed at the long-haired peaceniks. This time I had been there. I had a picture of those people he obviously despised. I can hear my mother softly singing Rock of ages, rock of ages, glad for me Our year passed pretty uneventfully. I went with Summer to her doctor appointment several more times. My knee healed, and I rejoined P.E. classes. In the spring, the local university students staged massive demonstrations, and classes ended early. People muttered about those kids, and our preacher railed against the evils of rock music and the disrespect of youth. We kept trying to sing seditious songs in Sunday school. Summer vacation came again, and for the first time, I did not look forward to it. I wouldn't see Summer until fall, and I missed her already. I had grown accustomed to her cynical commentary on life and politics and all things important or otherwise. As it turned out, I barely had time to miss Summer, 
although I thought of her often. Old Man Larson, who lived across our bottom 40 acres on the Deer Creek Road, had died that spring. In June, someone moved into his farmhouse. We hadn't known it had been rented, so it came as a surprise. Not really a surprise. With all his kids living in California, we knew they wouldn't keep it long. The surprise was who they rented it to. This old house had long fed my longing for mystery and adventure. It was the only house for miles around that came complete with turrets on the front corners, an unnecessary extravagance of old man Larson's dad who had built it soon after the turn of the century. As long as I could remember, Annie, Larson's wife, sat in the window of the second-floor turret and waved to me whenever I walked by. She never left the house, and I never met her. The only time we saw old man Larson—that's all we ever called him— was when he planted or harvested his seed corn, bouncing along on the ancient, rebuilt Farmall tractor. He never looked or waved. The first that we knew the place had changed hands was one Saturday evening in mid-June. Saturday baths were over, and we were supposed to be studying our Sunday school lessons. It was still warm at eight, so I took my book and headed for the swing, hanging from the maple tree in our front yard. As I dangled there, twisting and turning, memorizing my Bible verses, I heard it. In the fading sunset, the first pounding of the drums and wailing of electric guitars rose in the still, warm summer air. The music drifted across the fields, and I swear that even our sheep lifted their heads. The next morning, the sermon was from Revelation, with visions of fire and brimstone and armies on horseback and strange creatures that rose out of nowhere. It was all connected. Brother Walter intoned, to the godless music and loose morals and wild hairstyles of the youngsters. I caught part of it. I liked the gory descriptions, even while I was making plans for the afternoon and trying to devise a way to meet the new neighbors. That particular Sunday morning, it seemed to take a month to push my family out the church house doors and into the car to go home. The roast and potatoes were ready, and we sat down to eat. I made a bargain with my brother to get out of dishes. I promised to take his turn twice that week if he would do them alone today. He asked me for three times with the reasoning that there were more Sunday dishes and they were messier. I agreed quickly. All I wanted was to get out of the house. We often took Sunday afternoon walks, so no one asked any questions about my rush. I started down the road, but this time I wasn't counting the metal arcs or scuffling my shoes through the gravel. I was on a mission— The music from over the hill had continued into the night and began soon after we got home from church. My dad had grumbled a little, then ignored it. My own curiosity had reached a peak. I left quickly in the hopes of avoiding company that would change my route or ask too many questions. I must have been a strange sight to our new neighbors as I walked past their place in my long dress and braids. I watched them from the corner of my eye, taking in the braided and beaded group hanging out on the porch. Their music, with a full set of drums, guitars, and bongos, accompanied me for the next several miles. Several of them waved. When I got home, I called Summer, the only time we talked that vacation, and she told me that they called themselves Enoch's Smokies. She knew that they had moved from Iowa City to our area. Summer told me that Tom had taken her to hear them at Charlie's Coffee House the week before. They were good, she told me. For the rest of the summer, the rumors sailed from house to house around the neighborhood and back again. One of the neighbors was certain he heard them selling drugs over our party line. I never talked to any of them, but they must have known who I was. I walked past their place often enough. God will walk with me down streets where no one else will walk.
God will talk with me about things which no one else will talk. By the following August, the school district's new junior high opened, which meant that our country school closed down the 7th and 8th grades. In vain, I had hoped for a delay so I could stay where I was and wouldn't have to join the mix of kids from nearby towns. They were the ones who always tormented the Mennonite kids. I lay awake at night wondering if I could find my classes and what to wear for P.E. because I wasn't allowed to wear shorts. On the first day of classes, a kid hollered, Hey, Amish girl, go back to the farm, and tripped me as I walked past. In third period math class, the boy behind me threatened to cut off my braids. When I ignored him, he slammed a book on my head hard enough that I got a lump. Mr. Vilnick asked why I wasn't paying attention, but I couldn't see through my tears. Gradually, I got used to it, even the occasional spitting. I learned which hallways to avoid and which kids to look out for. I found a small group of friends to sit with at lunch. I didn't see much of summer that year. We weren't in the same classes, and we didn't ride the same bus. Once in a while, I ran into her, but we didn't have much to say. Occasionally, I asked about Tom. She said I should go to Iowa City with her again. I looked down at my books and said I had to get to art class. I first heard the whisper in study hall. It sounded preposterous. Everyone was shocked and indignant. A few kids wanted to find Summer and challenge her on it. I listened quietly. Mrs. Miller had asked her fourth-period English class to compose an essay on something they believed. Most kids had written about things like, everyone would be better off living on a farm, or why drive a Chevy when you can own a Ford. In our world, whole feuds could take place over the best tractor to drive or which church to attend. One essay, however, stood out, and it was Summer's. She had chosen a topic beyond our comprehension. It was so unthinkable, in fact, that we had rarely heard the word. Summer's topic was, Why I Am an Atheist. The whispers became mumbles that turned into a dull roar. Kids stared when Summer walked past, but she walked on without a glance. Several girls tried to hand her a tract on salvation, but she sidestepped their outstretched hands. The tracts ended up taped to Summer's locker, which she never even bothered to remove. I considered my course of action. At night, I awoke in a cold sweat. To think that someone I knew did not believe in God was terrifying. On the other hand, the anger of my friends also made me uncomfortable. You're her friend, one of them urged. You go talk to her. Someone has to tell her she's going to hell. I stared back at the adamant face in front of me the one encouraging me to do the right thing for God and all Christendom. But I thought of my hours with Summer and her brother, of the books she introduced me to, of our recesses spent on the monkey bars avoiding bombardment and dare base, of protests and skipping school. Mostly, however, I remembered Summer's unequivocal acceptance and her nonchalant attitude toward appearing in public with me, a peculiar-looking Mennonite kid. By the end of the week, I decided that I would tell everyone to leave Summer alone and I would talk to her, tell her that it was okay, even if it scared me. As I got off the bus on Monday, I walked by Summer, but at the door I paused and turned around. Summer, I began quietly. Could I read the paper you wrote? She nodded and rifled through her bag. As she handed it to me, she asked how things were going. I shrugged, put her paper in the back of my folder, and hoped no one had seen the exchange.
At home in my room that night, I pulled out the paper and laid it on my nightstand. I stood by my window and picked out Orion's belt and dagger in the southern sky. I turned on my tiny transistor radio, the one I had won in a contest at the local A&P. The sound was garbled, but slowly I pulled in an AM talk show from Des Moines. One of the regular callers was talking, the one simply known as the lady from Lamoni. People called her a radical and hated her. She was saying something about North Vietnam that I did not understand. I moved down the dial to KIOA. As Bob Dylan began to sing, I swallowed hard. Taking a deep breath, I sat on the edge of the bed and reached for Summer's paper. I read it from beginning to end and kept rereading it until I fell asleep, clasping it in my hands. I woke in the same position, still clutching the sheets of paper. I had to hurry to catch the bus. Lunchtime came, and I still had not seen Summer. Fervently, I hoped that she wasn't there and I'd have another day to think about it. But when I looked across the cafeteria, there was Summer directly in my line of vision. The talk around me hummed on, and eventually Summer's paper came up again. How can she believe that God does not exist? Someone fumed as anger and perplexity once again mounted. My jaw was locked shut and my tongue was too thick to speak. After lunch, I walked past Summer's locker on my way to Science Lab. The paper lay heavy in my bag. I bumped into her coming out of the bathroom. As if it belonged to someone else, I watched my hand reach out toward her with the four pages gripped firmly between my fingers. Summer took them and looked at me, but didn't say a word. I couldn't even nod. I continued toward my locker, pulled out my books, and headed for the lab. All I could hear was the pounding of my heart. All the junior high chatter, everything else was distant, as if I were underwater. My ears were saturated with the sound of the flowing of my blood. The hall, with all its noontime activity, contained only me, lost in my thoughts of the paper that had created my own private hell. And you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, I don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. I never told her what I wanted to say, that I didn't want our friendship to end. We didn't speak to each other again. I missed Summer, despite my relief at not seeing her. After junior high, I went to a private high school, and my friendship with Summer seemed far behind me. Years later, when I was studying history and religion at the University of Iowa, I saw her one more time. I had just left a philosophy lecture when I ran into her in front of Prairie Lights Bookstore. We passed a few pleasant but strained comments between us. Occasionally, I wonder where she is and whether she is spending her adult life in the countercultural mode that she began to develop in elementary school. Maybe it's just as good I don't know. I'd be disappointed to learn that she retired into normal anonymity, married with children in a house in the suburbs, driving a minivan, and vacationing at Disneyland. One short school year and a brief friendship let loose a torrent of questions and doubts that refused to be ignored. Alongside the doubts, the demons of shame have continued to haunt me over the years. Mostly, however, I have mourned the loss of Summer's friendship. From time to time, I have tried to find appropriate atonement for what I, in my adolescent fear, did not do on that distant day in eighth grade. 
Nothing has helped, so I am writing this for summer. Yes, and how many times must a man look up before he can see the sky? Yes, and how many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? Yes, and how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. That was Hope Nisley reading Seasons of Doubt. As she told us, the leading character in the story is a Mennonite. In her community, girls wear long skirts, prayer veils, and never cut their hair. In their home life, there's no television, and young men become conscientious objectors. And so, as we heard in tonight's story, she meets a girl in school named Summer who has a totally different background. She dresses differently, and since this was the time of the Vietnam War, ends up with many opposing ideas and views. At school, she even writes a paper entitled why I am an atheist. And though Hope treats her much better than many of the other kids, at the end of the story, she seems to regret not having become a better, closer friend. Friends, Hope nicely currently lives in Reedley. We've had her on numerous times, and we're always impressed by her fine, sincere writing. Recently, a story of hers, entitled The Black Box, was published in the Pacific Journal. Thanks for your great story tonight, Hope. Please send us more in years to come. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just get online at kvpr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our author will be Joel Pickford. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.